Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Open AI. There's, this is the story of the morning. I'm going to assume most people have, figured, have kind of seen the news. Uh, right now, it looks like. Uh, Microsoft might be a little bit of a winner here. So we're going to roundtable this thing. Ed Ludlow, he's host of Bloomberg Technology. Uh, and Mandeep Singh, he's our senior technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So Mandeep, at this stage, and it's still a very fluid situation, I'm not even sure where the employees are going from OpenAI, whether they're staying at the existing thing um, or whether they're going to go over to Microsoft. I'm not even sure where Sam Altman is, but it appears that Microsoft- Dude, he got hired by Microsoft. Well, yeah, we'll see. I'm waiting to see like triple confirmation there. Satya Nadella confirmed it. <laughs> That's He's right. the CEO of Microsoft. <laughs> he can be going, I don't know where these guys, it's Silicon Valley, the kids don't know what they're doing. Mandeep, it seems like it's a win-win-win for Microsoft here. What's your take? Actually, uh, we sort of disagree with that consensus view that nice. it is a Good. win uh, for here. Microsoft simply because, uh, you know, when you are acquiring talent like this, yep. it's not the best way to, you know, build a new product. And in this case, the IP still remains with OpenAI. So it's not as if they can port over the large language model, which is really the key to building the ecosystem. They will have to build it from scratch. And remember, when you're training AI, you need, yes, the infrastructure, but you also need large amounts of data. And Microsoft may not- It took Twitter not... like three months to make Grok. Well, so, so Twitter had a lot of their own data. So that's what it comes down to. Can they build a model just based on Bing data? The answer is no. And that's where I Wait, think- Wait, why not? Because Bing has a lot of data. Well, Microsoft so has a lot of data, right? Look at how long uh, Bing had had integration with OpenAI ChatGPT. Still, they haven't been able to take any share from Google. And Microsoft's CEO admitted that, that despite the integration with OpenAI. That's an AI, important point. And, and so clearly there is a lot more to OpenAI's IP than what we know. And that's why it's a proprietary uh, foundational model, unlike Meta's Llama, which is open source. So there. Yeah. All right, so I want to bring in Ed Ludlow, if for no other reason than he's literally in Silicon Valley. And Ed, your job right now is to explain to me why I or anybody else in this country should care about what's happening at OpenAI and Sam Altman. Have you cared about anything else all weekend? Yeah, that's well, the problem. Well, I mean, uh, 
you know, to, be, to my credit, chaps, I am on almost every single byline that we've written since Friday lunchtime. <laughs> so uh, forgive ahead, my uh, forgive my dour mood. But look, um, this is what's at stake: billions of dollars of value in the private markets, uh, the elimination of a company that is the clear market incumbent for both consumer-facing and enterprise tools that are powered by a large language model and are presented in the form of a chatbot or generative AI tool. And third of all, there will be a massive spotlight on Microsoft because uh, the question will remain, do they buy the rest of it? Well, what we reported over the weekend is that when all of this wrangling was going on, and we can get into it, I've got some great gossip for you guys, but the, the principal consideration was Sam wanted the board to resign. They didn't, they dug in, and he did not come back. But one offer on the table was whether Microsoft or not took a board seat. And the reason that they didn't, I'm told by sources, is that there would just be too much scrutiny from an antitrust perspective, too much concentration of influence of a company that is leading the direction of AI in the real world. That's what we're talking about here. Well, now they get most of the company for free, right? I mean, I'm interested well, to hear what you've been hearing, and I know that you, uh, first of all, Ed, I've been reading everything you've been writing, and thank you for the work. I can't believe you've had any sleep, and you look amazing. I, I apologize <laughs> for that, because I haven't had any sleep. That's um, why I'm so grumpy. Sec secondly, to, to me, it looks like Microsoft now gets um, Altman and Brockman and maybe 500 other employees pretty much for salaries, right? I guess maybe well, a signing bonus, but they don't have to spend $86 billion, or even if you take out their 13, um, you know, $73 billion. Isn't that right. a huge win? Right. Uh, OpenAI has 770 employees. 500 of those have signed a letter to the board this morning, which I've seen, saying that if the board doesn't resign, those 500 will resign and they will go to Microsoft. When Satya Nadella posted on X last night, he buried the lead. It was a very long statement. The idea that Sam and Greg Brockman, the former chair of OpenAI's board, were joining Microsoft was right at the bottom. But there was very clear language there, and I'd ask the audience to go and look out for it. It said, those two with others joining from OpenAI. Satya said it last night. So that's a very real risk. And what I would say is that at the core of this story, is that OpenAI is almost the entirety of its value, and Mandeep may disagree here, but the entirety of its value that the investors outlined to me is its intellectual capital. That if you take those top 10 data scientists and the top product guys, which is Sam Altman, and you take them somewhere else, OpenAI has, AI has nothing left. That's what we're talking about here. Okay, I'm looking Mandeep. Except for the IP that Mandeep was. That's what I'm saying, Mandeep. Yeah. I'm looking at Microsoft stock. It's only up 7 tenths of 1%. I would have thought it would have been up 10% or more why do you think that is? And, and look, uh, OpenAI has a lot of other investors too. So granted, uh, Microsoft owns 49% of the company, but there are other investors, the private rounds that they had before Microsoft got on board. And so I oh, think- By the way, can I just ask quickly yeah. to clarify? Microsoft owns 49% of the for-profit unit in the nonprofit structure, Correct. or do they own 49% of the whole thing? 49% of the whole thing, but Ed can confirm if that's, uh, he has a different uh, point of view. Ed? Well, on paper, on paper, the, 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 on the balance sheet of Microsoft, it will show the, the OpenAI LLC or the incorporated for-profit business. But, but again, the audience, uh, there's a Venn diagram or a diagram out there, sorry, not a Venn diagram that, that sets it out 
and you, you can say, but Mandeep is right, 49% Microsoft holds. I'd make one observation that the other 51% on the cap table, my understanding is that even the biggest individual shareholders from a venture firm perspective own less than 1% each, which is another reason that this is so chaotic right now. Right, and Altman says he owns none. Well, so, I mean, look, at the end of the day, uh, there is a lot of IP within OpenAI. If the employees leave, they can't take that IP. And that's the thing about a tech company is, uh, you know, if I have an algorithm or a model that's within a company, until unless Microsoft ends up buying that company, they don't have rights to the OpenAI foundational model. And for employees to recreate that, let's say the 500 employees recreate that model within six months, what is your IP? I mean, any other company can do it then. So it, it puts Microsoft in a tough spot because one, on the one hand, it could show that AI, uh, large language models are a commodity. On the other hand, they may have to buy the whole company for 80 billion because the other 51% want a good exit. They don't yeah. want the company to die away. Uh, so Ed, thir 30 seconds, what are you reporting sure. on? What are you guys working on today? What are you chasing today? Okay. Uh, the big thing is going to be private markets. There was a tender that was open for hundreds of billions of dollars for employees of OpenAI to sell shares to Thrive Capital. My understanding is that is very much in doubt. Friday, the market for private OpenAI stock was incredibly liquid, very unusual. In doubt is probably companies. the polite way to say it. Uh, yes, that liquidity slammed shut Friday while I was having lunch with a source who was trying to buy in that market. Um, Look out for that. People are going to get burned. These are transactions that were pending and will now not go through. Yeah, I'd say it got burned. Yeah. That All story's right. over. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Ed, I know you're busy. Ed Ludlow and your team out there uh, for Bloomberg Technology. Uh, Mandeep Singh, Senior Technology Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Appreciate uh, getting you two folks together as we continue to report on this dynamic technology story. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so Matt and I were just talking, like, one of the key fundamental issues here in this open AI seems to be the debate within open AI and within the tech industry and with, I guess, just kind of the tech world in general about AI weighing commercialization versus the fact that this thing could end civilization. So um, that seems to be getting a little bit lost here in some of the reporting here today, but maybe our next guest can help us out. Jim Anderson, he's the CEO of Beacon Software. He joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Jim, how do you guys, you know, in that space, in the software space, how do you think about AI in terms of commercializing it, but by all, also being cognizant of the potential risk it could pose? Yeah, Paul, it won't surprise you to hear that we think first about commercializing it, right? Because if you can't commercialize it, you don't have anything to really worry about, right? So in the eyes of a, of a sort of a capitalist or a private sector person, you tend to focus on that first. I, I think one of the things social media has taught us is, hey, let's not collectively be so naive about the negatives. Let's not wait a decade and see what, uh, what damage we've wrought and then see if we can undo it. So I do think there's, uh, including with private sector capitalistic companies, there's a lot more willingness 
to try to anticipate those negative effects. Um, but you know, the OpenAI example is an extreme example of a capitalistic company worth reportedly eighty billion dollars, according to Microsoft, run by a nonprofit with a very different sensibility. And it's not really surprising that you ended up with a very different view of the world. Well, and as we know with social media. You just can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? And right. the problem is where social media seems to now, in hindsight, be a cancer on society that we can't cure. <laughs> um, AI could be uh, like a massive cardiac arrest. I mean, it could just kill us all. But no one can care about that anymore. Since we can make money on it today, it doesn't matter if it's going to destroy society in uh, you know decades yeah, I don't know that I would agree that nobody can care about it anymore. But you're, well, you can you're, care, but you can't do you can't, anything about it. You can't it. stop, you can't it, stop right. it. Right. Yeah. right. But I think it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, the, we could have a debate about Skynet and whether you know the end of humanity, <laughs> how likely that is to happen. I, I think the risk of that is it misses, you know, if, if everything is the extinction of humanity or, or or not, I mean, you know, you've you've sort of dialed it up to 11, right? There's nothing less than that. I think there are plenty of near-term harms that are much more likely that will happen much more quickly oh, that point. we run the risk of glossing over. And, and think about it, right? Remember the early days of email, right? You know, wow, this is amazing. I can communicate with people. And then scammers, grifters, fraudsters, and marketers decided, hey, I can send a billion emails for the same prices won and all of our inboxes started being flooded well now basically content creation is effectively free with with uh, chat gpt and those kinds of tools with ai now i think the entire internet runs the risk of being flooded with spam misinformation and just garbage and we're all going to have a very pragmatic challenge you know sort of managing through that ne never mind the the terrible potential long-term use cases just in the near term we're going to have a lot of real problems because bad actors are going to take these tools and do bad things with them so open, or just AI in general, I mean, with open AI, I guess as, a, as we speak, part of Microsoft now, what are the competitors out there in just an artificial intelligence? What are the competitors and does it change? It seems like it's got to change the competitive landscape. It, it w no doubt it will. I mean, you, you want to say, okay, what are the chatbot competitors who are building large language models that, you know, Google's got barred, Anthropic was a former AI person. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a couple of them out there, but, uh, you know, building your own large language models is like a billion dollar proposition. So it's, it's not going to be dozens of these things. Okay. It's, a, it's a big tech kind of investment. But I think what what's interesting is you raise a point about, you know, we all tend to think of AI in terms of chat GPT and chatbots. And that's mm -hmm. really amazing, and it's got some really interesting use cases. But think about other worlds like transportation, healthcare, manufacturing. AI has the ability to transform those industries. Traffic, like imagine a world where autonomous vehicles, and those have their own sets of challenges, can untangle traffic in big cities, and we no longer have to sit in traffic jams. Imagine a world where you know radiologists don't miss scans on x-rays or MRIs and things like that. I mean, you know, there's plenty of use cases where AI can truly help humanity in substantive, powerful ways that have nothing to do with chatbots that are powered by AI and mm -hmm. these underlying large language models. So uh, the large language model or the data set, I guess, is the most important issue that you deal with. How do you uh, look at this from Beacon Software perspective? Like, um, what data sets are the most important? You know, which ones do you want to get a hold of? Which ones yeah. can we not touch? Um, 
Yeah. It's such a huge issue, right? Yeah, it is. And at Beacon, we've specialized in transportation, right? So we're working with state DOTs, Georgia and other states, to say, okay, how are you going to untangle traffic, mainly in your big cities, which is where you've got it? Well, they're actually awash in data. They've got more data than they know what to do with, than they can effectively store, than they can effectively harness. And what's AI great at? Taking a massive data set and making sense of it. And these connected vehicles, now think about it. Every time you've got a Tesla on the road, every time you turn your windshield wipers on, um, there's a signal, right? there that's been captured and you say well who cares well guess what if you harnessed every vehicle on the road and you knew when their windshield wipers were on at what level you so now cool. have a hyper local precipitation map that's the likes of which nobody else has that right that's awesome <laughs> So those kinds of that, right. But you've got to be able to capture the data. You've got to be able to intelligently use the data. And you've got to not be able to drown in the data, which is what everybody is facing right now. And AI, to oversimplify, AI has the ability to keep you from drowning in data like you have been. Is there, who's who's thinking about how AI should be managed, regulated? Is anybody thinking about that out there? There's lots of thinking. The question is, anybody doing anything about okay. it? So I think, you know, again, let's give credit where credit's due. I think regulators, legislators, uh, and even the companies themselves are thinking about it and are talking about it. And I think there's legitimate criticism. Great, you just want to think and talk about it and never do anything as a way of deflecting. Um, I, you know, the EU, of course, takes a leadership role in a lot of things around privacy and data protection and all that. Would stand to reason they might take a more aggressive, and they already have you know, started to take steps towards a more aggressive uh, position than, than the U.S. I think you, you're going to ask the big, we are going to ask the big tech companies to be more responsible and maybe sign up to a higher standard than we would have a decade ago. Okay, Microsoft, okay, Google, okay, uh, Facebook, Meta, you know, those, those types of companies, we're, we're going to expect more out of them. But I, I think at the end of the day, especially in the U.S., ultimately Congress is going to have to get involved. Oh, and great. Yeah, <laughs> that, that may, they have a few issues. The questioning coming from our Congress <laughs> I won't mention. There are a few I can oh I can definitely gosh. imagine, but it's a horror show thinking about it. So how long, Jim, until we have um, real leaps forward in like autonomous driving? And I mean, the real question is how how long is it going to be until we have far fewer deaths from traffic accidents? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because we've got 43,000 people a year die on U.S. roads. It, it is a it is a public health crisis. I mean, people don't typically think about it that way. And those are human driven cars. So there's a crying need for that. But we just saw lost over the weekend in all of the open AI news, uh, Cruise, the robo taxi company CEO stepped down. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, yeah. But you've controversy because because they were not open and transparent. There was an incident involving a robo-taxi in San Francisco. Somebody was seriously injured. They didn't really quite disclose what happened, and so they lost trust there. And so it's striking to me, this sort of, everybody wants to move fast, but if you move too fast, you end up going slower, right? Because all you're gonna do is create a backlash. You're gonna set the entire industry back a, a year or two. I don't know what the, the time frame will be, but I think it's critical that companies involved, and Tesla's being maybe the most notable of this around this autonomous driving, is running the risk of, sort of poisoning the well and setting things back because they're being too aggressive. And to the beginning of our conversation, right, what does big tech do? They just know how to do big tech, right? They go fast. I got, I'm a private sector company. I've got to grab adoption while it's there. I've got to move fast. You know, what's the famous line Facebook had? Move fast yep. and break things, right? Yep. Until yep. they realize they broke something <laughs> maybe significant. Exactly. All right, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Jim Anderson, he's the CEO of Beacon Software. His job is to fix the traffic in Atlanta, Georgia. Good luck with that. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The tune
TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We have Matt, Matt Siegel in here. Uh, he is the head of, I guess, crypto analysis over at Van Eck. What's your official title at Van Eck? Head, head of, of Digital Digi- Assets Research. You got it. I was well. pretty close. Um, and, I mean, before we get into anything else, when are we going to see these ETFs finally allowed by the SEC? Because it it doesn't even feel like Gary Gensler's dragging his feet anymore. It's like he's grasped on to a chair and people are trying to pull him. What's the deal? The final deadline for approval of a number of these spot Bitcoin ETFs is the first half of January. Uh, so th- there's a lot of logistics that has to go on behind the scenes at the SEC with various divisions talking to each other and communicating with issuers to button up all but these it's applications. But it's going to happen. Very high percentage by the first half of, of January next year. So what does that mean for... Uh, the market. I mean, even beyond Bitcoin, Bitcoin itself is trading above $37,000, which to me is just absolutely nuts because I started covering this kind of as a joke in 2012 and it was like, you know, $90. So the fact that that same string of code could be worth $37,000 is nuts to me. Um, But a lot of people still look at this as kind of a failed experiment, which baffles the mind. Well, let's start with the impact of of the ETF. When an investor buys Bitcoin on Coinbase, a retail investor, they're paying an average of 2.5% in transaction fees. When an ETF buyer buys a Bitcoin ETF in Europe where these spot products trade, they're paying 10 to 20 basis points in spreads and commissions and fees are often zero. So what we have is an order of magnitude decline in costs for the end user. And essentially, you're mainlining a Bitcoin-only exchange into the brokerage account of every investor in the U.S. Can you arbitrage that, by the way, as a trader? Well, that's why we have. That's why there's a functioning futures market, and the CME's market share of that futures market has recently reached an all-time high. So it, it is the regulated flows. Bitcoin ETFs have seen one billion dollar in flows in the last month. That's eighty percent of the total year-to-date that we've seen. So th- the flows are coming from the regulated side. Bitcoin's up thirty percent in the last month. Yep. When it's one-way buying in an illiquid asset like this, the price impact can be large. All right. There was an election in Argentina. Please explain to me why this has a connection to Bitcoin. Pretty shock result as well. I mean, well, can a you guy pronounce who it? looks like Elvis Javier and lives with like his mom and six dogs won. How do you pronounce his last name? Millet. 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 Javier Millet is a libertarian who has been very vocal about his desire to eliminate the central bank of Argentina. Argentina has the worst performing currency in Latin America in the last three decades. It's had the most number of recessions. It has the least amount of foreign direct investment. So sticking with the same path is kind of the definition of insanity, keeping the same thing going and expecting something to change. Uh, This new leader has plans to dollarize the economy. He has been very outspoken about his belief that central banks are a scam that impose an inflationary tax on regular citizens. And he's also been very outspoken in his admiration for Bitcoin in restoring money to and value to its original creator, which is the private sector. So we've been observing for some time that 
crypto adoption in Argentina, both Bitcoin and stable coins, is the highest in Latin America really? and the highest among the highest in the region. As a hedge the, the, against that inflation you were talking about? Yeah. Okay. Uh, folks are holding Tether in order okay. to maintain dollar purchasing power. The other thing we've noticed, the largest private oil and gas company in Argentina just announced plans to mine Bitcoin with the excess gas and methane that's a byproduct of their existing production. So it's very rational, we think, for countries to use their stranded energy, monetize it to earn Bitcoin, and in the process, give their citizens a hedge on the fiat-imposed inflationary tax that Millet has spoken so, uh, so much about. By the way, I'm not an official libertarian. Like, I'm you not officially like anything. Okay. Uh, especially in a day and age when you only vote against someone and not for anybody gotcha. anymore. Okay. But aren't the founding fathers, like, isn't this country kind of libertarian? Right. Well, isn't that I'm the point you. of I'm America? Exactly. Um, and you're in a great state of Ohio. That's where you're from. So it's yeah, yeah. ground zero uh, there. So, so Matt, um, what's your take on the rest of the 20,000 other coins? I mean, Bitcoin is something we could talk about all day. And I think, you know, even Gary Gensler doesn't think um, Bitcoin is a security, but everything else has a question mark. Um, are there are there like ten that you like and the rest are junk? Are there a hundred that you like and the rest are junk? How does the whole thing look to you? We think the vast majority of the value in this ecosystem is going to accrue to a handful of protocols uh, and thus tokens. And it's very early stages in those days, and there's still a lot of regulatory uncertainty. So just focusing on Bitcoin because of the huge number of catalysts for next year, including the, the lack of supply, more than 70% of Bitcoin supply has not moved in the last year. That is an all-time high. The Bitcoin halving, which is an algorithm change, uh, uh, occurs next April. April, that will cut the amount of Bitcoin by half that is generated. Uh, we're in the middle of, a, of an absolute boom in Bitcoin fees. So transaction fees on the Bitcoin blockchain are now 15% of all Bitcoin miner revenues, which is an all-time high that's been turbocharged by these NFTs on Bitcoin. Uh, so, And with the ETF coming and the institutional adoption via state-affiliated actors, right? So my call is that Argentina will become the fifth country in the world to mine Bitcoin for its own state reserves, uh, joining El Salvador, Bhutan, uh, Oman, and the UAE. Uh, and with that regulatory certainty and the existence of the ETF and the U.S. government and G7's continued overspending debt and deficit problems, uh, that there'll be large institutional buyers that will migrate to Bitcoin. Uh, you know, the, the history is that the rest of the coins benefit from that, but that usually happens after the halving, which is next April. All right. So while we have you here, tell us what your thought is on WorldCoin, because we've been talking about Sam Altman all day in regards to his position at OpenAI or now Microsoft, but he started this like biometric uh, cryptocurrency. I don't know how it works, like measures your eye and keeps the data. But what's the story with that? It's like it's a layer two Ethereum based coin. So you can see from the regulation being passed in the UK and in Canada uh, around what can be said on internet platforms uh, that there's a huge desire to differentiate the humans from the bots, right? Presidential candidate Nikki Haley was in the media last week saying that uh, everyone needs to be verified uh, in order to participate on social media. I doubt that's going to happen in the U.S., but if it were and we wanted to, pr to uh, preserve some uh, user privacy, then a cryptographic network that can 
can verify user identity without revealing the name uh, would be an attractive product. And at the, uh, that's essentially what WorldCoin is trying to do. So we do think that over the next year, there's going to be some innovation that um, allows uh, AI to be differentiated, whether it's generated by a human or by a bot, and that crypto has a role to play in preserving privacy while enabling those functions. That's cool. Matt Siegel, thank you so much for joining us. Matt Siegel, he's the head of digital assets research for Van Eck, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And John Tucker is going to come up, uh, prepare a executive summary of what we discussed in this segment. So everybody's on this. <laughs> he's on been the taking same. the minutes. <laughs> exactly right. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Now, uh, we have been talking a lot about airlines on this program and the difficulty um, that the manufacturers have making enough planes. There was just a huge order, yeah. right, for uh, 300 of uh, the, uh, was it the 737? Uh, or I think so. I don't know. In, in any case. A bunch of them. Uh, if you order a plane today, your chances of getting it soon are very low. Um, I just got a message from Ali Ben El Maldani, the CEO of ABL Aviation. He said he was at the uh, show and putting some orders there too, and uh, he could come on and talk about it. So I was like, "Great, come in the studio." He's Absolutely. in New York for one day only. Oh, we got him. We get him on set. Ali, thanks so much for joining us. Um, tell us about the state of aviation in terms of ordering a plane right now. How difficult is it? You know, what are the prices like, and when can you expect actually? When can you actually expect to get um, delivery? Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. It was a pleasure. It's always an issue, I think, to get uh, aircraft today. Uh, as we said last time, you have seven years to eight years wait for wow. both manufacturers, Boeing or Airbus. You have some issues, of course, with the engines. Uh, you saw what's happened with Pratt & Whitney. So we have a few issues on the engine side that we need to fix and that have been fixed by the OEMs. You saw Dubai Airshow last week was the biggest order since 2017. So the order book on, in Dubai was insane. Uh, you had Emirates that made a huge order, Fly Dubai, Ethiopian made a big order. So there's a big demand. There's not enough supply, and that's the first issue. And even uh, since a lot of aircraft during COVID got so tired, it's extremely hard today for airlines to find aircrafts that they can operate. And that's one of the biggest issues. We spoke about it last time when we were here. We keep on seeing it more and more. And even the older, like 737-800 and the classics, are being asked to come back to the markets because we need them to fly them. And we see, again, during the Christmas season where there's a big need. You saw it last summer. I think we spoke about you guys going to Europe, which was the cost of tickets that was going higher and higher because of the demand and the lack of aircraft being provided. So I envision a desert in Arizona or New Mexico and a lot of 737s, a lot of 757s are sitting out there because they were decommissioned for whatever reason over whatever recent period of time. Can I just go grab one of those planes and refurbish them and put them back in the air? 
It's not as easy as you think. So if you want to get uh, what we call an aircraft airworthy again, uh, you have a long process to go again to put that aircraft back into service. Uh, you're not going to just come and fly it again. It needs an inspection. It needs what we call an AD inspection. It needs a uh, few inspections to get back, which are very costly. So the difference between the cost of getting it back and getting a new aircraft, that's where there's an arbitrage to be made. And we saw it in the last two to three years, where the cost of leasing a 737-800 on A320, uh, not a Neo, but an other generation, went to the roof. It went so expensive. So today, if you lease an aircraft, it's almost about 40 to 50 percent than it was a few years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a big demand, and that impacts, of course, the ticket prices. So, by the way, the big order was for se 777s, the 777, seven, seven, okay. right? That's the X. Emirates order that you're talking about. 777X. 777X. Yes. Um, and that's what? It's a much bigger plane, right? You yes. like the single aisle. You like the 737s and the A320s. I like the 737, A320s. I love the A220, which is the, single, the smallest one that Delta operates a lot. We have lots of them with Delta and Air France. I love this because it's very liquid. You can move them very quickly. You can, the cost of uh, fitting them to a different airline is much less. If you need to have a wide body fitted again to a different airline, the cost is very high. We're speaking about one to at least million of dollars to make it fit for basics, to make it fit to a new airline versus when it's a smaller one, when all economy class, I can move them very quickly between one airline and another one. What is the state of the OEMs, the Airbus and the Boeing, why are they having such a difficult time ramping up production? Yeah, I don't understand that. You know, I, uh, a couple years ago, I ordered a Mercedes G500, and it took about a year for them to make it. Now, they only have one factory in Graz in Austria, right? So I get that, and they're not making more than like 25000 a year. These airline manufacturer airplane manufacturers are like the biggest companies in the world they have factories all over the place why can't they just get more uh, people in there and make more metal well first of all they don't have if you look at Boeing or Airbus they don't have factories all over the place they have a certain amounts of factory each each assembly line it's not really a factory it's an assembly line each assembly line have a certain amount that they can produce every month uh, you know maybe Seattle like, all of them have a certain amount that they can produce that's the first issue. So they cannot also produce. They produce what they can produce. Are they at producing at max? Yes, of course. They are they producing are? at max okay. capacity. They are doing their best to supply as much as okay. they can. But the second issue that you have to remember, that it was a COVID, that started doing COVID issue, is the supply chain. And if you look at all the supply chain, because you have to remember, Airbus and Boeing are assembler. They assemble yeah. everything that is provided to them. So Good all point. the Good back point. supply yeah. chain is a big issue. So, and it's not only in aircraft. It's as you said, in cars, if you want to order a car today and you're a specialist in car, Matt, there's a big issue of finding a car. If I tell you today, go find a G400 diesel, it's almost impossible to find because us, the guys saw this, and the cost of a car or an aircraft is about 20% than before COVID. Right, so you've seen that huge inflation amount uh, as well. What are margins like for you? I mean, does that inflation eat into your margin or is the demand to lease aircraft still so strong? The Demand to these aircrafts is very, very strong. Uh, there's a big demand. But you have to remember, all of us, of course, leverage our deals. We need to get debt. The cost of debt is what co kills us, I think, uh, on the deals. Okay. Because you have 70% to 80% of debt on each and one of them. And where does that debt come from? Do I go to the JP Morgan Chase and get a loan? Yeah, JP Morgan is active in that market. So you have two types of debt, of course, secured and unsecured debt. Uh, on, you have either 
the banks, uh, the, cap the, the banks that come and provide you a debt on it, you know, all the players from Bank of America to JP yep. Morgan to CC to the Japanese banks to the Chinese banks. And you used to have, which is a lot less active today, the capital markets. So before that, you can do an ABS, a securitization, and use that capital markets money, which was at that time cheaper. As of today, the capital markets for aviation is not very active for the last two years. It used to be a lot more active on the ABS side. I think in the next year or two, it might come back. But the capital markets was a very competitive way of financing aircrafts. Is private credit, does that play a role? Yes, of course, it's very active as well. Private really? credit, life insurance, uh, lots of insurance, uh, life insurance companies uh, lend because the leases are seven years, eight years, 12 years. So it matches the maturity of the insurance, the life insurance companies. We've heard from some of the uh, just folks in the industry that India is going to be is a big growth market and will continue to be a huge buyer of aircraft as they look to expand their fleets. Are you seeing that? Well, if you see the last order, this was uh, about three, four months ago of Air India, it was the biggest order I've ever made. I think it was about 500 aircraft that they ordered. Wow. Okay. Uh, yep. So that order was huge. Yep. Um, Look, India, uh, with few airlines that are there, is an amazing jurisdiction. You can lease aircraft there. The issue that you have with India is how do you process aircrafts? Because in aviation, you have what you call a Cape Town uh, countries. So those countries that signed the Cape Town, uh, Cape Town Treaty allows you to repossess those aircraft. Repossess those yes. aircraft. It's okay. similar to Chapter 11 kind of treaty where you can go to those countries and they possess those aircraft. So if, they don't, so if an airline doesn't make its lease payment to you, you can literally go to that country and repossess. Exactly. Okay. But in India, you, it's, it's harder. Uh, okay. I don't believe as of yet they're not a signatory of the Cape Town Treaty. You need to check, but I don't think they are. They are. So that's harder on those okay. countries that didn't sign the Cape Town Treaty to go repossess aircraft. That's the hardest part for us. If someone doesn't make payments similar to a car in America, you go repossess that car and lease it to someone else. That's what we do in aviation. You can move it from one airline to one airline. It's a chapter 11. You do a possession. You fix okay. the, the car, the aircraft, and you move it. How can you have, what is China? Is that, are they signatory to the Cape Town? Yeah, I believe so. I have yeah, to so, check. Yeah. Uh, it's, it changes on the monthly basis. I, I know that Russia, the, the Russian war in Ukraine threw kind of a wrench into that in terms of the, that region. Um, what has the Middle East been like since... Um, Hamas, uh, the Hamas-Israel conflict started. Has that has that been not notable in the business? In aviation, no. Uh, we didn't notice it. Um, you know, most airlines even uh, were doing the best. Uh, if you look at Emirates, uh, Flight Dubai, all the airlines in the region are very active, are very operational. Like the, the profits are very interesting. Those airlines are really booming. Uh, so there's no impact. If we look at one of our clients, El Al in Israel, yes, there's a little bit of impacts, but El Al was very open with us. Uh, they tell us every day what's going on. Uh, they give us feedback. The government is supportive. So even for one of our clients, which is El Al in Israel, which, uh, with whom we have 577s, they, they are very open. They tell us everything, and that's what I love about El Al. They were always open uh, in business. They always told us during COVID about payments, how to fix it. So the relationship with El Al is amazing. They were a very open airline to work with. But how closely are you watching that? I mean, if things broaden out uh, to Lebanon, Syria, if, uh, God forbid, Iran gets involved, I mean, it's going to be difficult for every business. But not only aviation. And right. look, I, Matt, you know me, I'm a very optimistic guy. I hope that this will never right. happen. Uh, I hope that people will come back to their reason and it will be fixed. You know, uh, as a guy from Morocco that do, do business, of course, with all religions, I think that it's just a political thing and I hope it will stop. Uh, I don't believe on the long term uh, it's a good thing for any of us. And not only in aviation, it will be an impact for everything. Yep. Uh, so I really hope it will stop and uh, it will have 
If that's happened, it will have a lot more impact than the Russia can, in my view, for aviation. Right. So, because the Asian is very sensitive, uh, it's in the middle between Asia and Europe. Uh, it's an Asian that is extremely important for us in aviation and in business. Uh, so, my hope is that it will stop and come to an end. All right, Ali, thank you so much for joining us yet again. Ali Ben El Madani, he's the CEO of ABL Aviation, gives us a good view into the world of aviation and aviation finance. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.